0: What's the time get hello everybody and welcome back to the illiteracy podcast I'm your host Tim Benson a senior policy policy analyst at the Heartland Institute a national free market think tank and this is episode 130 something of the podcast. I'm not sure exactly what episode number, but it's up there. So um, anyway, not a very new podcast anymore. But for those of you tuning in, just tuning in for the first time, basically what it is we do here on the podcast is I invite an author on to talk about a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, and uh, um, you know something on a topic or a person or a thing or an idea, something like that, that we think you guys would have uh, an interest in hearing about. And then, you know, hopefully at the end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, give the book a purchase and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is mr fergus borderwick and mr borderwick is the author of eight previous nonfiction books including bound for canaan the underground railroad and the war for for the soul of america america's great debate henry clay stephen a douglas and the compromise that preserved the union and the first congress how james madison george washington and a group of extraordinary men invented the government And he is also a previous guest on this podcast way, way back in its early days. Uh, Probably, I think, within the first five episodes of the podcast, I think he was one of the first five guests. Uh, So he was on back then for his book, uh, Congress at War, How Republican Reformers Fought the Civil War, Defied Lincoln, Ended Slavery, and Remade America. And he's back with us now to talk about his newest book, which was published back in October by Knopf. And that book is... Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant, and the Battle to Save Reconstruction. So, uh, Mr. Border, thank you uh, so so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, hi Tim. I'm very happy to be with you again.
0: Ah, great. Thank you. So, uh, same question as before. What what made you want to write this book? What was the what was the genesis of it? I, I know your last three books uh, have been about uh, or mostly about Congress. And, um, and although Grant is in the subtitle here for this book, uh, this is another book where Congress features very prominently.
1: Sure, Tim. I'll try to answer that concisely because several several different things fed into this. Uh, um, in part, uh, the people I write about in this book, or at least some of them, were people who figured in my last book, Congress at War. Um, who um, people like Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania, radical Republican Congressman, a a titan of Congress in those days, uh, and and others. And working on Congress during the Civil War uh, led me, of course, to be thinking about what these same individuals were doing after the war, how they coped with Reconstruction, and in that the congressional Republican radicals figured prominently in my last book, they were also those members of Congress who were driving Reconstruction. What's called Congressional or Radical Reconstruction. Um, and okay, that that's part of it. I was already living with some of these people, and I want I wanted to stay with them because I don't think they've been adequately understood or appreciated. Um, second, I've wanted to write on Reconstruction for a very long time. Uh, I think for a couple of generations, several generations, it was uh, regarded as, if not exactly dead space in American history, but just a story of of uh, of failure, misguided policy making, corruption, and so on. And that is an extremely superficial and in large part inaccurate way of looking at Reconstruction. It uh, has desperately been calling for a a, a new a. am avoiding the word revision here because the denigration of Reconstruction was itself a revision. Right. It was the first revision. That was the first revision that lasted for a hundred or so years in the, in the heyday of Jim Crow and Lost Cause mythology. And the true history of Reconstruction was a victim of that mythology. Okay. Uh, the the Attempt to rebuild the South uh, after the Civil War on a more equitable basis, a fairer basis that included the enfranchisement and public participation of former slaves on one hand. And two, rebuilding the Southern economy uh, based on free labor rather than enslaved labor Uh, was a massive and large part of an idealistic project. Okay, uh, it did not succeed as its as its um, architect hoped. On the other hand, it didn't fail either as much or in the way that its enemies said it did. Um, so I, I wanted to write about that. I wanted to get into the the forgotten or neglected or or, or inadequately understood history. And finally, uh, uh. You will know if you read this book that I'm talking about the Ku Klux Klan. That's the first Klan, the the original one of the 1860s and 70s, um, as the first organized terrorist movement in American history. There was no question that it was organized. There's no question that, that it was a terrorist organization. That's not an anachronistic term. It was used at the time. And people of the day knew exactly what they were talking about. And there was no form of terror, terrorism uh, that we know of from organizations active in faraway countries, such as Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Hamas, that the Ku Klux Klan did not perpetrate. Uh, the romanticization of the Klan and movies and lost cause ideology uh, did a tremendous disservice not only to African Americans, who were its primary victims, clans victims, but also to the understanding of our history. And I, I I felt it was important to show that our country, much as we may not want to believe it or think about it, was capable of producing a uh, an extremely and often barbaric terrorist movement. And in a sense, at the end of my book, I say something like the following, that the line between civilization and barbarism can be very very thin. Razor thin. Razor thin. Doesn't take long. No, it, <laughs> it doesn't. And we don't have some special dispensation as a people or a nation that, right. that, that, that protects us forever from, from uh, terribly, terribly cruel and barbaric activity. I'm not trying to rub people's noses in it. That's not what I'm about. I'm an historian. I, I'm not writing polemics here. But uh, I want people to understand history as it was, Rather than, rather than as we would fantasize it might have been.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, before even, well, something I, I thought about um, quite a bit before I'd even read the book. I mean, obviously I've read a bit about Reconstruction, but I remember um, there's a gentleman who writes for the American Conservatives. His name is Rod Dreher, and he's from rural Louisiana. And um he had a blog post probably, I can't even remember, probably close to 10 years ago now, uh, maybe eight years ago, something like that, talking about there was, a, I think when that report came out about all the uh, the lynchings in the post-Civil War era, I forget the name of the organization, but they, they put about 4,000 lynchings or something like that between like the 1860s and the 1950s or something like that. I can't remember. And um, there were, I think he looked in the report and there were like five or six documented lynchings that they knew of in areas around where he grew up. And he was like, look, it's likely that people I knew growing up, people that were pillars of the community, um, you know, <laughs> uh, people who came to my parents house and had dinner or we went to their dinner or we went to their house and had dinner and broke bread these were people that were probably involved in one of these lynchings um and then he was just showing there was a, one of the lynchings that took place i forget the name of the gentleman in waco texas in like 1915 or something like that where the uh, uh it was a black man accused of murder probably wrongfully accused and he was found guilty in the trial and as soon as they read the guilty verdict the mob basically took him out and you know tortured him and uh, roasted him hung him from a tree and roasted him and and of course everybody was out taking pictures and it was a big picnic thing and people cut off pieces of his body as like a souvenir and they were selling postcards I mean they sold postcards of the lynching afterwards and all this stuff and he right in his blog post he's like this is this is no different from what Isis does i mean this is <laughs> this is like just pure barbarism I and mean, it, it's uh not just uh sadism and uh s- for its own sake it's there's a purpose behind this uh violence in this grotesque form it's to send a message it's to send uh you uh to to um <laughs> show people what you know, what can you, what you can expect uh, in this location if you act a certain way or look a certain way or, you know, step out of line in any sort of way that they choose. And, um, yeah, and just him sort of reckoning with that and uh, just how, uh, you know, how human society, um, you know, we haven't really advanced that far in the last hundred years. I mean, this wasn't, you know, this is the kind, this wasn't the Middle Ages, this wasn't antiquity. Uh, This was, you know, some of these lynchings, I mean, I mean, you can go back into the historic work, some of these public lynchings aren't aren't even 100 years old, you know, where these things were a massive spectacle. And I was reading the book and just, I mean, you have, I mean, you don't get too. um, You don't, I mean, you don't get as salacious as you could have in the book with all the violent details and the gory, but I'm sitting there reading the book and I was And I was just thinking about, um, you know, what took place in Israel on October 7th with Hamas and how they basically photographed or videotaped everything that they were doing, the murders, the rapes, uh, all this stuff. And I was just thinking to myself, I was like, you know, if these Klansmen back in the 1860s and 70s, if they had iPhones and the Internet, like they would have filmed all this and disseminated it um, everywhere, you know, proudly. Uh, You know, I have no doubt in my mind that that would have happened, you know. So it's just, uh, uh, it's harrowing to think about that it's not that far back in our history and uh, um, that this barbarism just sort of is so thinly below, I mean, the surface. And you think, well, um, we're beyond that. But I mean, the people that were participating in these things weren't, uh, you know, I mean, the members of the clan back then, they weren't just all, you know, low rent, Peckerwood, Hillbilly Trash. I mean, these were people that were the uh, pillars of the community, doctors, lawyers, uh, merchants, businessmen, journalists, uh, uh, clergymen, uh, you know, men who were held public office, uh, uh, peace officers. Uh, You know, I mean, it was the uh, the head of the um, all of it seemed the quote unquote pillars of the community in many of these places in the South. These men were all Klansmen at the time. Now, they might not all have participated in a murder or a whipping or a rape or something like that, but they certainly uh, let it and, you know, pushed it one way or the other and directed it. And in a criminal conspiracy, you know, if you're part of the conspiracy, even if you didn't commit the rape or commit the murder, if you were just driving the getaway car or you incited it, you're still just as equally guilty as the man who, you know, pulled the trigger or, or you know, pulled the rope.
1: Yeah, that's that's for sure. You put all that that quite well and quite accurately. Um, they were proud of what they were doing. They were proud of mm-hmm. what they were doing. Although it is important to take note of the fact that they wore disguises, and right. that that disguised people in a in a mob or a crowd. I mean, a mob implies something disorganized. The clan was mm-hmm. organized and directed. Uh, but that men may do wearing those disguises, men may do something that they might not do uh, if their faces were known to even their 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 neighbors and friends. Sure. Uh, and the, the I, again, I I, I don't want to overemphasize the kind of terrible lurid qualities of some of the things that were done to people. But truly, anything you can imagine, cruel yeah. human beings doing to others, were done by the clan. Uh, and I should say also to provide little context for people who are listening, that the Klan wasn't a small organization. There were hundreds of thousands of members, hundreds of thousands. The state of North Carolina, which uh, is estimated to have had by itself, maybe something in the range of 40,000. These are not ironclad numbers, but I think it's a reasonable number. And... It's very well documented that in some counties where the Klan was penetrated and and broken and a lot of people were prosecuted, that the membership in given counties was 60, 70, 75 percent of the white male population, meaning pretty nearly everybody. Yeah. Pretty nearly everybody. Um, And. uh, You know, it, it. The dehumanization of the Klan's victims is one aspect of it. You can't do these things. People were flayed alive. People's children were raped. Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 People were flogged to death. Um, All all kinds of things. No need to go into more detail than that. Uh, This was common. It didn't happen everywhere, every time. A lot of it was terrorizing people who were not, tortured, Mm -hmm. although psychologically being being terrified that way is torture, but um, uh, yeah, thousands of people documentably were killed by the Klan in that period. Many more undoubtedly were killed, terrified, and tortured, but those killings took place where nobody was recording them, where nobody was recording them. And, And if you have listeners who may wonder, well, how does he know all this stuff? I mean, how can you know these details? It's pretty well recorded. It's pretty well documented. One, Klansmen often were pretty proud of what they were doing. Uh, two, there are two huge bodies of, of uh, research material, resource material that are available. One, the records of the Freedmen's Bureau, that was the federal organization, which in the years after the Civil War, assisted free people in becoming educated, uh, um, uh, protecting their work, their their work contracts, and uh, built a lot of schools and so on. And freed people would come and talk to the uh, Freedmen's Bureau agents in hope of getting some redress for crimes, crimes Perpetrated against them, and the other body of material, which is less well known, uh, is the thirteen-volume, six thousand-page uh, uh, report of the joint committee that inve- congressional committee that investigated the Ku Klux Klan in 1871. It included both Republicans and Democrats who were apologists for the Klan. This was not a hatchet job, uh, and both. Members of both parties got to call witnesses. Hundreds of witnesses were interviewed. Subcommittees traveled all over the South and took testimony. It was the first federal committee that ever interviewed black people and the first one that ever interviewed women. So the testimony is pretty pretty uh, diverse in every sense. I mean, plenty, plenty of apologists for the Klan and members of the Klan who kind of denied because they were giving testimony. Uh, denied that they were members, but they sure knew an awful lot about it, and 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 so on. Uh, and if you read the, both these resources uh, are available online today, um, with a with a few with a few clicks. Um, uh, you're 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 getting testimony in real time. It was recorded soon after the events happened by people who often are taking uh, their lives in their hands to even testify, uh, to talk to federal investigators, federal members of Congress. Uh, and they're, they're it, it's quite heartbreaking sometimes the degree of faith and hope that, that people, ordinary people, and these are not only black Americans, white Republicans were also targeted by the Klan. Uh, the, the, by far the greater number of victims were were uh, formerly enslaved people, but so were a lot of uh, so were a lot of uh, white Republicans who were also murdered, as well. So it's it, it's more mixed than one might imagine.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in the book that basically the the Klan. Or uh, well, this first iteration of the Klan, the Klan at this time is it's essentially sort of the paramilitary wing of the Southern democratic party, sort of like, uh, (laughs) like the IRA is the, uh, you know, and, and Sinn Féin is sort of the IRA is the provisional or paramilitary wing of Sinn Féin or, or maybe Sinn Féin's the (laughs) the, uh, political wing of the IRA. But, uh, I don't don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg there, but, uh, but essentially that's what it was. It was uh, the goal of the Klan was to one, uh, Sort of keep black people as close as they could to uh, the uh, position that they held before the war, uh, before uh, emancipation, and then uh, and then certainly to keep them from voting or having any other civil rights. Um, and and then the reason they went after the, obviously the white Republicans is those are the help people that are helping to uh, you know help the the freedmen. Uh, uh, hold on to and, and keep their rights and uh, get them to vote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, so it was basically, I mean, the whole purpose of it is sort of a uh, massive disenfranchisement campaign, essentially.
1: Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning here that one, uh, the Republican Party in the South was the forward-looking party of the time. Uh, and the Democrats in the South uh, were essentially post-Confederates, or not so post-Confederates, and uh,
0: uh, mostly all unreconstructed at this point.
1: Yes, yeah. and 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 um, uh, the, the Southern Democratic Party was was intensely racist. It represented
0: the the the. Um, it's a white supremacist party. I mean, there's no. You know, I mean, I mean, it's literally the definition of. Yeah.
1: Uh, Unabashed, unabashed. Unabashed. Exactly. We're not not using an anachronistic term here. That's what they said they were. They were proud to represent that. They publicized that that was what they represented and so on. But the Republican Party, which is quite interesting in the the, uh, Reconstruction period, is embryonic. It didn't exist before the Civil War at all, zero. Uh, So it's being built from the ground up. And it's a biracial party. It's biracial from the beginning. And um, in time, it becomes heavily black at the beginning uh, until the whites are scared out of it, basically. Um, it was quite mixed. And those, those members of the Republican Party uh, were, you know, some of them, they were people who'd come down from the North. I don't like to use the word carpetbagger, it's a slur. It's an insult, it's a slur, it's, it's not a neutral term and they were a very very diverse category of people ranging from uh, opportunists to highly idealistic people a lot of union veterans uh, who wanted to be part of rebuilding the south on a free basis and so on Um, and there are native southerners often often native white southerners who were often wartime unionists who were severely repressed uh, during the civil war by the confederacy uh, pre-war uh, Whigs, often more often than not, but also a, a surprisingly significant representation of former Confederates. who mm-hmm. said the war's over; it's lost. Now the the, the slaves are free. We've all got to live here, and we've got we've got to build we've got to build a society we can all live in. And regardless of what they're Personal, deepest, innermost feelings. It's not an age that talked a lot about about, about feelings and psychology, but at any rate, um I mean, they were prepared. A lot of those, these were men. Some of them were were war veterans, hmm. not just Confederates by sentiment, but war veterans. Guys like Longstreet. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, excellent biography of Longstreet just came out by Elizabeth Barron, which focuses on his. Uh, activities during Reconstruction, but many who were not as famous as Longstreet.
0: Well, he was also best man at uh, yeah. Ulysses S. Grant's wedding. So I mean, they were good buddies.
1: They were. They mm-hmm. were. Yeah. So the Klan's goal here is both to, to, to force, uh, to scare African-Americans back to something as close to servitude as possible, but also to destroy the Republican Party as, as an institution precisely because it was biracial and it was trying to build a, a new kind of society. Mm. Uh, uh, so it had a, a, both a purely racist dimension and a political dimension as well. Mm. Uh, and, and the bravery, I mean, this is something I write a lot about in the book, uh, the, the bravery of both white and black Republicans Uh, uh, and their defiance of this kind of violence and terrorism and repression is really extraordinarily admirable. And and there are many individuals who really ought to be restored to our, to our historical memory.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned, there's a lot of, I mean, it's, it's a minority, but it's not an insignificant minority and uh, mostly spread along the Appalachian Ridge of uh, where slavery just didn't, Fit in that well of people that are, um, especially in those counties themselves, are are, are probably majority Unionists. uh, That's you know in eastern Tennessee, uh, western Virginia, uh, you know very northern northeast Alabama. Those areas. I actually my grandparents had a friend, uh, and she was from one of the few counties in Alabama that like voted not to secede uh, when Alabama seceded, and actually like raised veteran. I mean raised troops for the union army etc cetera, etc cetera. um yeah so it's not <laughs> so not every southerner is an unreconstructed oh. you know <laughs> white supremacist bigot i mean the people in these places might have been white supremacists but um but there was plenty of southerners who had realized that uh they had lost the war uh, that slavery was not coming back the situation was never returning that this southern society needed to change and went about trying to do that, uh, or and trying to bring that about, and sort of, for lack of a better word, integrate the South back into uh, the United States and sort of align it more with the uh, socially w- with the way things were in the rest of the country.
1: Uh, yeah, and I I, w- I will add to what you you said there, which is entirely accurate, that there were was actually a surprising number of former Confederates or white um, native Southerners uh, who were not uh, not from the Appalachians but you find them you find them everywhere you find them everywhere you're, you're right they're they're thicker on the ground in the mountains absolutely true um, and uh, in fact when the governor the Republican governor of North Carolina governor Holden uh, uh, is raising a militia. To to combat clan uh, activity in the wake of a the the horrible assassination of a white uh, Republican uh, state senator, uh, he actually raises the troops from the mountain part of uh, mountains of North Carolina and Tennessee um, because Unionism ran that deep up there. But but there are other there are others even some former plantation owners who turn up and they give very interesting testimony. About why their thinking changed, and and they they often are reaching into, into religion, into and you know people who knew in their guts that slavery was morally wrong, and 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 uh, searched themselves and 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 came to believe that it was it it was the necessary and moral and spiritually appropriate thing that it be ended, and then not necessarily to try to redeem their own history, but to build something. Uh, uh, Yeah. um, And for a few years, for a few years, the Republican Party uh, was pretty vigorous. was pretty vigorous. Uh, And as long as as it was protected by the federal government and before people were terrified into submission and silence by the Klan, it really did promise a healthier future for the south this country could have been spared a hundred years of, of, of Jim Crow and lost cause mythologizing it could have been spared uh look it, it, it the the evolution of the South would have been rocky no matter what but you know history's rocky his history is always <clears throat> uh, our history is always one of conflict even though we <clears throat> I think we often want to imagine that there was some golden age when everybody got along and 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 and, 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 and had a beer together and 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 uh, I mean those are moments those are moments but it is not the great stream of american history and uh, we could go off in many directions you know about about parts of history that have been air, airbrushed into uh <coughs> mm-hmm. Into a, a, into a quieter and prettier uh, story than they were at the time.
0: Sure. Now, uh, but it's also we should point out that this first iteration of the Klan it's different than the later versions of it. Especially, I mean, people when people think of the Klan in their mind, they imagine obviously, I'm sure the the white hoods and the robes, the white robes and the cross burning, and the mass parades and all that stuff. And but none of the the, the original Klan didn't. Uh, do any of that stuff that was all the uh, uh that all that iconography comes from the second clan and all that you know post birth of a nation stuff like i, I like it this way i don't know if you're a hockey fan or not but there's a uh, there's a nhl team called the ottawa senators and um, they were an expansion team back in the early 90s like 1992. but way back in like the 19 teens there was an ottawa senators that happened to win the stanley cup a couple times and then the team folded and collapsed and it just didn't exist anymore. So when the new Ottawa senators came about in the nineties, they raised like a couple Stanley cup banners from like, you know, 19 Stanley cup champions, 1918 or something like that. And it's like, well, that doesn't really count because <laughs> you're completely different. I mean, it's Ottawa senators in name, but you, it's not the same franchise that, you know, there's no continuity between the two of them. It's sort of the same <laughs> thing with the, with, with the, the popular version of the Klan that uh, pops up in the 20th century and and the 19th century version.
1: Yeah, you're entirely right. Uh, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, there were, there were essentially three iterations of the Klan. My book is about the first iteration, the original Ku Klux Klan, um, it, how it was created. It's very well documented. We're not talking about deeply obscure history here. It's pretty well known. Um, and that clan uh, uh, rode roughshod over the South for a few years, primarily from about eighteen, late eighteen sixty-seven to eighteen, about eighteen seventy-two or so. It, it lingered a little bit, but it was it, it was crushed uh, by uh, Ulysses Grant um, and and federal prosecutors in from eighteen seventy-two to eighteen seventy-four. Um, it ended. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. As as you pointed out, the second clan uh, came into being after 1915. It's probably the only terrorist movement in the world that was that was inspired by a movie, "Birth of a Nation," as you said, which is a brilliant, awful movie. Which is yeah, but
0: I mean, it's one of the most uh, important and influential. Like people who are film historians are like, it's the the content is terrible, but. Birth of a Nation is yeah. one of the most important yeah. and
1: uh, uh, influential films in the history of filmmaking. Absolutely. I mean, everybody should see it, even the parts of it are very hard to watch because of their, 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 their proud bigotry, you know. Uh, but that second clan had a very rapid uh, uh, rise in the 1920s, and the larger portion of its membership was actually outside the South. And its main targets were Catholics, immigrants, and Jews.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say the first clan didn't really bother with Jews no. and Catholics, and you know not at all. All that uh white Anglo-Saxon Protestant stuff that the that no. the later iterations of the clan will seem to focus on more even than they do on the black stuff. But
1: yeah, yeah, the second clan imploded because it was totally corrupt, it was a money-making operation, it played on uh, demagogically on people's fear, fears and hatreds, but it was a profit-making operation. It was corrupt. The le- the leaders were had their had their hands in the till up to their up to their shoulders, and uh, uh, it it collapsed at the end of the 1920s. The Klan was revived or reinvented yet again after World War II, pretty much directly in in reaction to the civil rights movement. Uh, but it was very fragmented. That third clan was very fragmented. It was it was very nasty, but mm-hmm. it was fragmented, and and it was brought down by the FBI essentially by the 1970s. So, just you know, as I said a few minutes ago, my book is strictly about the first clan, mm-hmm. uh, the the you know the the uh, post Civil War clan. And, yeah. um,
0: now, No, uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about the the. Birth of the Klan because it didn't, or I don't know, at least the intention at first when the Klan was formed, it wasn't a violent organization at all. It was just sort of like a goofy fraternal social club for um, ex Confederate officers. And they just basically, you know, dressed up in goofy costumes and went out and did like street pranks and, you know, and that sort of stuff. And then, but very quickly it turned. It made like a sharp turn into, um, you know, uh, violent terror. Um, how did so? How did that? How did the clan form? How did that change come about? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, as you said, it was formed as kind of a wacky young men's fraternity. Um, the, yeah, and the, and the name doesn't
0: mean anything. It's just a, it's just a goofy sounding yeah. name, like uh, like that movie True Lies. Uh, uh, there's part where they're briefing on some terrorist and his nickname is like the sand spider and he's like why do they call him the sand spider and he's like well it's probably because it sounds scary and that's basically what, <laughs> what they use you know, why that why is it called the clan it's like because it sounds cryptic and and uh you know that's
1: that's precisely right that's precisely right I I I, 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 I won't add to that uh, except that there were there there were other it was an era when fraternities began to become popular uh fraternal mm. organizations and uh there's a, a small book by one of the clans early members and he talks about that and he says exactly what you said as well it just sounded kind of spooky yeah, uh it sounded
0: cool so we
1: went and, yeah, and, yeah. and uh he said there was another one founded somewhere that they uh, named guastiukas doesn't yeah. mean anything either anyway mm. uh but um <laughs> About six months after that, the Klan, this the, the original group founded the Klan in the very small city or large town of Pulaski, Tennessee, about 80 miles south of Nashville. About six months later, a group of fairly high-ranking former Confederate officers met in Nashville, and they saw the potential in this in this seemingly harmless fraternity. Among its many pranks was scaring black people. They weren't torturing anybody, but they did enjoy terrifying, terrifying and distressing black people, harassing black people. And the group that met in Nashville saw that as, as, as the potential for the movement, which it, which it became very rapidly. Uh, and the Klan, the Pulaski Klan was copied in surrounding counties of Tennessee and then more and more rapidly outside Tennessee, northern Alabama, quite early, west uh, uh, across the mountains into North Carolina, northern Georgia, and then it metastasized at breakneck speed through 1868 and 69. Because one, they're contrary to the, the, you know, the, the, the notion that's kind of still embedded in the minds of a lot of people that the South was under military occupation under the mailed fist of the federal government, which is just nonsense. Um, By 1868, there was a grand total of 12,000 federal troops posted across the 11 former Confederate states and a very large uh, uh, minority of those troops were in Texas facing the Indian frontier. And where there were federal troops, they tended to be just in state capitals and big railway junctions. And they were also, with very few exceptions, infantry. And if you really think hard, you you realize it's pretty difficult for for infantry to catch men on horseback, which is how the Klan operated. One reason they were able to metastasize so quickly. And uh, agents from the Tennessee groups uh, spread around the South. This is this is difficult to document precisely who was doing what where and at what time, but I think there's no question that the famous uh, Confederate cavalry general Nathan Bedford Forrest, who became right at, near the beginning the first Grand Wizard mm-hmm. once once the Klan was was turned into a terrorist group he was recruited very early he was charismatic he was a former slave trader and he was a war criminal having presided over the massacre of uh, black troops at Fort Pillow in 1864. Um, and he traveled under the cover of being an agent for an insurance company, ironic, uh, setting up dens and clans and wherever those clan wherever he traveled, dens appeared and violence soon followed. Uh, I think he was one of a, an indefinite number of individuals who were doing that. Uh, but was he the
0: most important early member of the clan though? I mean, can we, is it safe to say that uh, you know, of all the men in that very early period who are involved with the clan that he is the most responsible for sort of making the clan go for lack of a better word viral. you know?
1: Well, yeah, he, I, I, that's a qualified yes. I think I think so. One, because he, as I said, was charismatic. He was charismatic. He was by nature a guerrilla fighter.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. She- uh, I was going to say Shelby Foote, uh, uh, the man who maybe a Southerner himself, but uh, judicious Southerner, um, the man who wrote the sort of three-volume classic history of the Civil War, considered said so the Civil War produced two authentic geniuses. One was Abraham Lincoln. The other was Nathan Bedford Forrest. But I mean, I don't know how how many people agree with that, but I mean, that's sort of the regard uh, people had for Forrest, uh, especially Southerners at the time. The Wizard in the Saddle, I think, was his nickname.
1: Yeah. Well, it it was highly romanticized by people who, one, either didn't care about or airbrushed away his his slave trading and war criminal history because they didn't want to think about that. hmm. Uh, And yes, he was charismatic. And yes, he was very talented as a quasi guerrilla fighting cavalry leader he was most effective uh when he was on his own uh uh, he didn't like taking orders uh it was a kind of personality that i think certainly appealed to lost causers and um uh i think it's a travesty to romanticize him or elevate him uh uh and and simply as some still do uh want, want to uh, remember him strictly as a talented cavalry commander, as if the war wasn't really about anything. It's just how well you sat. Right. I see. mean, you
0: I mean, you can be both. I mean, you can be, you know, a, a military genius and a colossal, uh, dickhead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I mean, you can be an awful human being and really good at the war stuff. I mean, you know, they're not, they're not mutually exclusive. So. But,
1: no, no. Uh, um, uh, but other other early leaders, John, General John Gordon, a major major Klan figure, uh, and uh, more judicious than 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 uh, Forrest. Forrest Forrest was an opportunist. He was a, he was a kind of parvenu who always was 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 kind of craving attention and wealth. He had it before the war, and he tried to recover it after the war, not very successfully. Gordon Gordon was a more conventional type of figure uh, and and was very successful after the war and as were quite a few of the early leaders of the Klan and former Confederate officers they did very very well indeed no matter how much they may have publicly whined about about, about mm-hmm. the difficulties of reconstruction they did pretty damn well sure all
0: right um Let's switch gears a little bit, because we've talked about the Klan enough. Let's talk about uh, Ulysses Grant and the Republican Congress, and, um, and how they're going to go about. Um, obviously, Grant doesn't become president until 1869, doesn't get sworn in until 1869. So the Republican Congress, and when we're saying the Republican Congress, it's basically all Republican. There's like, you know, a handful of Democrats left in the north obviously all the democrats in the south um, can't (laughs) can't go to congress because they're all ineligible to participate in the government because they haven't been pardoned yet or clemencyed or or what have you um so there really is i mean the the democratic presence in congress at this time is scant um but the republican congress is going to have to battle with andrew johnson who uh, who is not a republican he's a democrat he's a southern democrat But one of the few who um, did not support the South's decision to secede, Um, he is still something of a uh, white supremacist Uh, doesn't, although he does have some, um, if you read the biographies of Johnson, he does have some, um, you know, just because people are strange, um, he has a very a good relationship with some of the uh, black people uh, that he's personally acquainted with, um, you know, donated money to uh, a former slave of his to, you know, uh, to form a a black school for black children and uh, things like that. Um, But uh, he will put it this way. Johnson is not um, a fan of the Republican attempts to to change the structure of the Southern of southern society and fights them sort of tooth and nail. And that leads to the whole impeachment situation and then leads to Grant. So how did the, well, first of all, in the first part of this reconstruction period before Grant takes office, how does, how does the Republican Congress uh, navigate this period and, and what are they trying to do? And, and how is Johnson sort of trying to s- subvert that?
1: Well, as you pointed out, uh, in the first years after the war, uh, Republicans had a top-heavy majority in in uh, in Congress in both houses of Congress, so they could legislate pretty much as they wished. But uh, even though sentiment in Congress was fairly radical, we're not. This isn't twentieth-century radicalism. Nineteenth-century radicalism. The word applies to being. Uh, Seeking a very forceful reconstruction of the South and equal rights for African Americans. Uh, and one, you've had, you've had the 15th Amendment, uh, sorry, 13th Amendment in 1865. The battle over what becomes the 14th Amendment, which is extending citizenship and, and, and civil rights to African Americans, is a gigantic fight. And there are various parts of that. Uh, there, there's a battle over the over the Freedmen's Bureau, whether to fund it, continue funding it, or not. Um, whether to re-enfranchise, to exp- extend rights back to former Confederates or not. Johnson is writing par- pardons by the by the, by the chief, you know, uh, uh, as fast as he can because those are his future voters. He figures. Anyway, so a lot of Democrats actually are re-enfranchised. During, during this period and and are being elected where it's possible for them to be elected. It's very complicated, very complicated. Uh, so Congress uh, alleg- passes one act after another, after another, uh, designed to enhance the rights of, uh, of free people in the South. Johnson vetoes them, Congress passes them over as vetoes. Uh, and, and uh, Uh, the 14th Amendment and its analogous and and, and adjacent legislation do come to pass. Uh, Johnson, however, will not uh, exert any any executive power whatsoever uh, against the Ku Klux Klan uh, or against former Confederates returning to office. Uh, Grant is commander of the armies during this period. Grant was not a, a natural politician at all. Although he was a very smart man, a lot more than he was given credit for by uh, by the elite in his own party, is Stupid of fact. like a fox, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean he he was, <laughs> you know, he was a he was a shy man. He was introspective. He was quiet, uh, very smart, and, and pretty well educated. As anybody who went through West Point was,
0: and a great uh, writer too. His his uh, memoirs yes. are fantastic.
1: Yeah, I mean, super- not just.
0: I mean, not just. I mean, they're yeah. supremely well written. Yeah, know.
1: yeah, quite so. He,
0: he has his own style. It's. I mean, it's. Uh, you know, it sort of suits him. It's very terse and sparse and yeah. uh, to the point and sort of. You know, it's very good.
1: Read read his letters, uh, yeah. uh, which are all easily accessible, and his wartime dispatches. They're extremely well written. Uh, very I mean, by comparison to Lee, who's notoriously in, uh, poorly expressive and I mean they, they, we won't get into Lee here, but yep. uh, uh, a number of uh, uh, Lee's shortcomings or failures are attributed to uh, bad dispatches. Grants vagueness, yes, yeah vagueness. Grants are crystal clear. And it, at any rate, uh, and Grant, I believe, pretty much composed everything in his head before he wrote. That's an extraordinary talent. I'm a writer. I know that's an extraordinary talent. Um, so at any rate, during the course of those early years of Reconstruction, Grant uh, goes from being essentially politically neutral. Of course, he's a Republican by this point, but it's, I would say, a not a terribly political Republican, to being profoundly moved, one, by the experience of freed people who are struggling. To, to for, for dignity, for education, and, and to be able to exercise the rights that they've been promised. You read his letters, he, you'll read the letters that came to him. It's packed with letters from free people uh, talking about their experiences. So he really knew what was going on in the South. He's personally moved by it. Uh, he yeah, he's,
0: uh, he has a fairly... Uh, um, all things considered for a white person in the mid 19th century, he has a pretty good uh, (laughs) uh,
1: uh, relationship with black people. He does. He does. He's, 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 he's he's capable of great empathy. He's capable of great empathy. He treats black people with dignity. Um, He uh, uh, has uh, black people come to the white house on a, Uh, on an even plane with white visitors, very challenging at the time. I I, I go into that a little bit in one part of the book. Um, Grant also, as uh, as the man who led the Union to victory, sees the fruits of the war, the Union victory in the war on the the brink of perhaps being overthrown, won by the Ku Klux Klan, in its effort to destroy that two-party system in the South and to and to drive blacks and black voters, bear in mind that blacks were get, were enfranchised in states before the Fifteenth Amendment. So you had a lot of black voters by from about 1868 on, uh, very significant. Um, so Grant uh, Grant also is acting to preserve the Union victory uh, in the war uh, when he begins to move. Uh, both to strengthen Black rights, with the, by his very strong support for the 15th Amendment, he personally goes up to Capitol Hill. And says, "I want this. I need this." And uh, 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 he um, be- becomes willing. He essentially becomes a radical. He he. Uh, it's very hard. I, I don't really see any daylight beca- between Grant's thinking by the late 1860s and certainly the 1870s, any daylight between him and the radicals like uh, 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 Charles Sumner. couldn't get along with Sumner. Nobody liked Sumner. Uh, it was a personality thing. Especially not play. Preston Brooks. No. <laughs> oh, well, yes. <laughs> I mean, plenty of Republicans didn't like yeah, Sumner yeah, yeah. either. Yeah. Um, I knew a guy who co- in, in, in North in South Carolina who collected who collected canes that oh, were, sent they, they were to hundreds sent them. of them sent mm-hmm. to Preston Brooks. But anyway,
2: yeah.
1: uh, so Grant is essentially a radical by by the time he he becomes president. It takes him a while to learn how to be president, uh, and and that that the presidency didn't work like the army. You didn't just give orders. Yeah, but he does learn. He does learn.
0: Now, did he have when he started out when first thing when he, you know, takes the oath and becomes president, did he have a sort of a, a comprehensive plan in his mind for how they're going to go about pacifying the south and taking on the clan and ensuring that the south um, doesn't win in the peace what it lost on the battlefield? I mean, or is this something that's all going to? Grant's sort of going to do ad hoc sort of thing, is
1: that? Yeah, he did not have such a plan. That's a really good question. I'm not often asked that. I so say I appreciate it because it's um, well. One, it was ad hoc, but uh, the congressional radicals, Republican radicals, had, of course, had a plan. It's called the Fourteenth Amendment, basically, which already by this time had been enacted, uh, and the Fifteenth Amendment. The plan was in place. Uh, And it involved protecting the embryonic Republican Party in the South, the two-party system in the South. And it did include, for for most Republicans, uh, uh, conciliation and re-enfranchising former Confederates. Uh, uh, I mean, most of them had, in fact, been brought back into the tent by the time uh, Grant became president. It was only a comparatively small proportion who were not yet uh, re-enfranchised. Um, but Grant also, and this is typical of presidents in the 19th century, Grant saw Congress as the major engine of government, as the first branch of government, not the presidency. This has changed in the 20th century, uh, going back certainly to FDR and pretty much to, uh, Woodrow Wilson as well. Um, t- until today, I mean, I, I think virtually all Americans, if asked, will say, what's the most important branch of government? They'll say the president. Well, it's supposed
0: to be, yeah, but you're right. It's supposed to be Congress. It's the. Yeah. It, it, I mean, everyone thinks of them as co-equal branches, but no, actually Congress is supposed yeah. to be, I mean, it, it's the reason it's the, uh, uh, first, um, uh, first subsection of the constitution. It's the longest one, uh, you know, the, the constitutional convention put the most thought into what, you know, how Congress was supposed to be. It's supposed to be numero
1: uno. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and article
0: one, excuse me, article one.
1: Of the yeah. And, 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 uh, uh, Grant Grant thought like a Whig. I mean, he was not a pre-war politi- politician, but he thought like a Whig, and Whigs in particular felt strongly that Congress was the lead branch of government. So Grant saw, and he said this, I believe in his first inaugural, unless I'm mistaken, that he would follow the will of Congress. He was explicit about it because that's what he, how he believed the government was supposed to function and in that sense he did so he went to congress when he wanted and needed authorization to crack down on the Klan. Uh, uh radicals in congress were quite ready to give it to him but it was still a battle to uh within congress to enact enforcement acts which explicitly this was all uh, this was all done uh entirely legally grant was not a caesar he was the furthest thing from that he was accused of it but he entirely untrue, uh, these enforcement acts gave him the specific authority to move against the Klan and to suspend habeas corpus, crucial, crucially, in areas where the Klan was exceptionally active, areas in insurrection. That's the word of art that was used in the legislation. Uh, so Grant in this is, has made clear he wants this or- authorization, but Congress, the radicals in Congress are also ready to give it to him, and and with the support of so-called moderate Republicans as well, uh, who s- realize that the situation in the South has gotten way out of control. Uh, the Klan has done so much damage already, and in truth, the South never really recovers, even though the Klan is defeated. Uh, yeah,
0: uh, but like you said, uh, once um, once they give Grant the tools uh, with the Enforcement Acts and uh, to go in and start busting up the clan i mean it doesn't take very long i mean basically once they uh, they center their um center their efforts in upcountry south carolina and basically once they busted up there it doesn't take long for the rest of the clan and in, in the rest of the south to sort of disintegrate and just you know <laughs> go the wrong way and uh, so it, it, once they get the enforcement mechanisms in place yeah. that they can actually you know charge and convict these clansmen of these crimes, uh, you know they they uh, the uh, courage of the clansmen sort of dries up really, really quickly.
1: Well, such courage as there was, because bear in mind and I, I would imagine many people wouldn't really be thinking about this, you might imagine or somebody might be imagining, uh, as you saw in *Birth of a Nation*, for example, that the Klan was fighting federal troops. They didn't fight federal troops. They were they were terrorists who fought civilians, who were disguised, rode into hamlets uh, or to, to to isolated farmhouses, uh, dragged people out of their houses, flogged them in the road, lynched them, uh, raped their ra- raped their women folk, and so on. Uh, uh, their victims were nearly always unarmed. They attacked unarmed people. It was a coward's war on the part of the Klan against unarmed civilians. Uh, when they were faced with, with federal troops, really in upcountry South Carolina, and not only in other states as well, but South Carolina was the test case for Grant's war against the Klan. Uh, the troops Grant sent in were the 7th Cavalry. Uh, one, they had horses, which meant they they were mobile, and mobile troops were very effective against the Klan. Uh, and yeah, these are a lot of the same soldiers, some of them who would die uh, at the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876. Seventy cavalry, yeah, yeah. Um, but faced with the faced with the cavalry, with Union veterans for the most part, the Klan completely caved. Completely caved. They wouldn't fight. The, they wouldn't fight the army.
0: Mm. Now. Um, it's good to talk about this. How much of the this racial violence during this period can we link? I mean, how much of it was Klan directed or Klan um, uh, was the clan perpetrating itself? I mean, were there, uh, were there like we sort of you know we see these guys nowadays, these um, sort of like lone wolf terrorists that'll you know uh, watch them. ISIS videos or something like that, and then go out and commit some sort of uh, attack or you know kill somebody or whatever, and they'll say like I you know um, <laughs> I uh, I commit this uh, or I commit this act in the name of Al Qaeda or ISIS et cetera et cetera, but they're not really um, you know part of that organization obviously, um, but even though they're inspired by it, so how much of this violence during this period is um, being committed? Do we know of by Klansmen, you know, acting as Klansmen officially, you know, sort of semi-officially as you know
1: the Klan? Uh, good question. Uh, were there were there so-called lone wolf acts of terrorism and kill- Yes, the, yes, there were. There were, um, uh, but <laughs> we have to bear in mind, tragically that uh, in much of the south African-Americans had very little recourse to the law Uh, uh, unless they had immediate protection let's say by republican sheriffs and deputies and there were um, or by the or by federal troops uh, they were defenseless essentially and there are are many instances that uh, that we know about of African-Americans who were shot by their employers because they asked for a fair wage or just any wage or, or um, because a couple of uh, white fellows were liquored up and they decided to kill somebody. And it's extremely rare for, these, for anyone to be pu- punished in these instances. Okay, the, the vast majority of acts of terror against uh, uh, freed people, are committed by the Klan. As I, I said early on, the Klan had an enormous membership, hundreds of thousands of people scattered across the former Confederate states, hundreds of thousands. And if 70, 80% of of the, the um, uh, white men in a given county are members of the Klan, that's pretty much everybody. And the Klan was organized. Now, not every den, it wasn't hierarchical. It, it was highly decentralized. The, 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 the Tennessee group kind of lost, lost control pretty, pretty quickly, but the Klan replicated itself according to their principles. It had a specific constitution, very detailed actually, it was written in Tennessee and that constitution, it's called a prescript, uh, wound up everywhere, everywhere. And uh, uh, so there within an individual den or an individual county, there was a there was a structure of discipline, okay, and bear in mind that it's the leading generally the leading men of the county or the town who are leading the clan, and uh, uh, so you're not dealing with anarchy, you're dealing with organized insurrection, systematized insurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'm talking when I, in my book I'm talking about what's documentable. I I I. I uh, Uh, it's impossible really to parse the numbers. How many people were killed in individual random acts of violence, as opposed to those who were killed by systematic violence. Uh, I have complete confidence in saying the vast majority were killed through systematic violence, but it's impossible to parse the numbers. Uh, And those killed, the Equal Justice Initiative, which you referred to earlier, in the, in the broadcast, which has worked very hard to tally uh, the number of killings of, of African-Americans uh, since the Civil War, uh, offers a number of approximately 2,000 people d- during this period that are documentable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's a conservative, they think it's a conservative mm-hmm. number, and I agree. It's conservative, but I'm not going to say 10,000. I can't, couldn't say that.
0: Well, that's 2,000, that's also, only out of a population of about what four million, right? Uh, southern blacks are
1: around yeah. there. Yeah, about that. About that. Yeah, uh, but they're typically the leading people. Yeah, in black communities, mm-hmm. uh, they're the natural leaders. They're the people who've who've held either their are teachers, people who've held of office or elective office, uh, who. Leaders of the Union League, which was a um, uh, the, the the organizing arm of the Republican Party in the South, specifically, it becomes pretty much a, an African American organization. Um, mm-hmm. It's decimated in, in 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 most areas because its leaders its leaders are public; everybody knows who they are. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, and you mentioned too. Uh, I Just want to bring this up: uh, the Klan is really its most aggressive in the areas where. Uh, the population the split between black and white is is closer to 50 fifty. it's not um, it's either non-existent or not really active in those places that are you know overwhelmingly white or overwhelmingly black
1: Yeah yeah that, yeah that's absolutely true. Um, yeah if if an area is overwhelmingly white, well uh, <laughs> African Americans don't don't have have any room to thrive anyway right uh and they're not running for office and they're not organizing because uh there aren't enough um and in areas like the uh the sea islands of of south carolina and georgia that that Mm -hmm. area down there uh which are very heavily african-american particularly south carolina uh there's there's no fertile soil for the clan there aren't enough whites uh uh, and some areas like that are electing African-Americans to Congress until the beginning of the 20th century, mm-hmm. which isn't well known, I think, or much appreciated. I mean, the number is very small, and their 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 influence diminishes.
0: Yeah, I think usually people think, like, once Reconstruction ends in 1877, that's pretty much it for Black representation in the South up until, like, the, you know, civil rights period. But no, there was, you know, a handful here and there.
1: Yeah. Hand- handful here and there, and there there were some of them extremely eloquent, talented men, and I should say, parenthetically here, by the way, there's also one of the myths about Reconstruction is that, well, slaves are also ignorant and educated. How could you expect them to govern themselves, hold office, be trustworthy? Which is a lot of nonsense. The, uh, I mean, many of the African Americans who do hold office were already educated. Uh, sometimes in the South, often coming from other parts of the country. Uh, Some of and, them
0: were, were freedmen even before the, the Civil yeah, War. Some of them had been emancipated um, right. you know, or, or bought their freedom or gained yeah. their freedom.
1: Yeah, and, and the one of the most striking things uh, about the period, if you delve into it, is the enormous uh, enthusiasm of, of formerly enslaved people to become educated, to become sure. literate. Schools are packed, people of all ages. And that's one reason the Klan's burning schools. Right. Right. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, many, many enslaved people, one way or another, helter skelter, did learn to read and write. I mean, it's, it's not a small number. So the, the talent pool is actually pretty large. And some uh, individuals, Robert Elliott of South Carolina comes to mind. I write about him, uh, are, are really extraordinarily elo- eloquent and thoughtful uh, Forward looking people who uh, would have deserved elective office anywhere. Uh, and a few mm-hmm. of those do manage to hold on, as they said, until the turn of the 20th century. And after that, the next African American elected to Congress, I believe, is from Chicago in the 1930s.
0: Yeah. Right. Now, uh, wrapping up a little bit, because we've already gone over an hour, so I don't want to keep you too long past how long I told you I'd keep you. Uh, so, really, as we're going to see, as Reconstruction goes on, you see in the book, uh, this weakening appetite for the process um, of basically (laughs) subjugating this insurrection and um, bringing the South around um, from Congress, from the Supreme Court, from the northern public at large. Why was there this dwindling support? for staying the course with Reconstruction over this period.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, I I put a lot of the blame on the northern voting public. Um, but for for context, bear in mind that the Klan, while the Klan has been destroyed, uh, it, it did have a significant effect. White Republicans were pretty nearly scared out of the Republican Party. Uh, by the Klan, um, two, uh, a, a lot of African Americans were scared away from exercising uh, their rights by the Klan. Not all, uh, uh, but once it was called disabilities. Once once former Confederates are entirely permitted one to run run for office, they they. Uh, are able to regain one after another after another of the former Confederate states. As soon as they do, they use use legislative means to disenfranchise Black people. Okay, that's one thing that's happening. So the the Republican vote in the South is shrinking. Uh, It's just, it's inexorably shrinking. At the same time, the Northern public is essentially sick of not just... They soldiered through four years of war, 450,000 Union dead, probably something like that. Um, People want to be done. They want to be done with the South. They're tired of the South. They're tired of the South's problems. And they're also tired of African-Americans and their problems. Uh, And we see this again and again in history. Uh, uh, There's a reaction after a war, every, every war. And, and indeed, I mean, we've seen it quite recently uh, in, in the, in the response to what's happening in the Ukraine uh, from a couple of years ago, of an enormous outpouring of interest and support for Ukraine to today, a radically diminished amount of support and how many people are really wake up in the morning thinking about Ukraine. I, I'm just, that's not a great analogy, but it's the current one. Um, now, uh there's also a split in the Republican Party between the the diminishing number of radicals, they're dying, they're dying off. Many of them were older men, they're dying, they're dying off. And the and those who call themselves liberal Republicans, it's not today's liberals or today's liberal Republicans, different, different category of people. And they are relatively the conservative Republicans. Confusing, but there it is. Uh our are um uh, turning away from Reconstruction as a matter of policy and embracing conciliation with the South. So politically, this is what I've read a lot about this in the book. The, the what's going on on Capitol Hill. Um, so white Southerners have recaptured, they say, redeemed control of Southern states, northern voting republic, uh, the northern voting public is losing interest in voting for radicals and supporting civil rights. In 1874, which is really the pivotal year in ending Reconstruction, the Democrats regained control of the House of Representatives for the first time since the 1850s. And House of Representatives, as you know, uh, uh, originates money bills. The House will not fund anything to do with Reconstruction, including maintaining the military in the South, or hiring enough prosecutors to prosecute Klansmen, so the will, the will has gone out of uh, um, the effort to to save to protect Reconstruction. Grant is essentially left left twisting in the wind here. He was prepared to continue, but Congress is no longer with him after eighteen seventy four.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on the one hand. Reconstruction on racial matters in the South. Uh, obviously, I could. You can pretty much say. It's, if not quite an object failure, it's pretty close. I mean, just because I mean, the South basically won that. They uh, sort of, uh, you know, ran out the clock on that with everybody else, and. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, it's hard to you know hindsight 2020 20 on how to handle things and um it, there was a great fear um you know that after especially right at, at the end of the war and this is probably robert e lee's most heroic moment is when you know his uh some of his officers are coming to him to you know tell the men to disband and go to the mountains and we'll fight this out in a guerrilla war and lee is like no it's it's over These these boys need to go home and, you know, start their lives over again and be, you know, be good citizens, follow the laws, and everything will be okay. Um, so he poo-poo's that. But I mean, there's still this fear that that uh, hostilities could break out. You know, I mean, we're fortunate that with this massive civil war that we had that killed hundreds of thousands of men. That was so. Uh, uh, just the animosity was so strong uh, sectionally. Um, I mean, we're lucky this didn't turn into, you know, Northern Ireland or or the Basque region of Spain or, or Kurdistan or something, you know what I mean? Um, so in that regard, um, maybe it was somewhat successful because the country, for all intents and purposes, I mean, other than the black citizens, you really didn't have a say in it, but uh, the country, for all intents and purposes came back to be one country and we haven't had you know any sort of uh, sectional violence uh, or bombings or things like things like I said you see in, in northern Spain or or in Northern Ireland or uh, you know anything like that we didn't have a long gestating just period of of sides taking shots at each other, you know, like the country didn't turn into like pre-war Kansas, basically. You know what I mean? So on that sense, maybe it was a, a partial success. I mean, that the country you know, stayed together mm-hmm. without, uh, you know, uh, without violence, but on the other hand, total, total failure when it came to um, Southern, Southern blacks and, and their rights and their ability to live um uh, fruitful and, uh, uh, live the lives that they wanted to live. We'll put it that way.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I personally would, would, would say Tim that, that the civil, uh, the guerrilla war did come. It was the Klan war, the Klan's war against African-Americans against the Republic, against the two party system. And, and, uh, and, uh uh, well
0: i I just mean in the sense that like i mean i understand that but in the sense that like southern you know southern agents aren't setting bombs off in new york city or or chicago or boston or something like that with the intent of you know killing yankees and and yankees are not coming down to the south and you know throwing molotov cocktails and you know baptist churches and you know (laughs) In in the white South, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like a tit for tat sort of situation like we see in other places, you know. Yeah, so none, none of that ever happened. Thankfully,
1: that's the certainly certainly. Though I I have to believe, since I'm a I I'm a realist, but I'm also I'm fairly I'm pretty pretty um, optimistic about the American people, and and I I think that a had Reconstruction been continued. Continued in the way that it was intended. Uh, it would have been rough. There would have been more. There would have been violence. There would have been mm-hmm. some of what you're talking about here. It might have lasted on and off for an indefinite period of time. But the country would would it would have fought its way through. I, I th- that's my view. But it didn't mm-hmm. happen that way. I I'm I, I'm not I I I I don't do speculative history. Right. We don't know. Yeah. I don't know. We only know what did happen. Not, not what might have happened. That becomes wishful thinking or, or fearful thinking the other way around. I, I uh, uh, but I, 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 I do, I do think it was a a great opportunity for the United States as a whole, as a whole, to to fulfill its its promise earlier, right? Uh, and that was oh, absolutely, sad. and it was hundred mm.
0: Okay, so final question. Uh, before we go, uh, you've answered it before. This is one that everybody gets, uh, sort of the exit question on the podcast. And that's, uh, you know, what would you, what would you like the audience to get out of this book or what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away with having read it?
1: Okay. Um, uh, uh, since we're not going to talk about this for another hour, I will try to be concise. Okay. Uh, I would like people to appreciate that this is real history. This is what happened. This is a, 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 it is a dark side of a certain period in American history, yet it also was populated by some extremely brave, heroic, aspirational Americans, both white and black, who tried to do the right thing before the country was entirely ready for them. But, uh, uh, we don't have a special dispensation from, from fate uh, that will protect our country from from uh, self-destructive uh, political impulses like the one I've written about in Klan in War. This happened. It matters. It mattered to people then and it matters to us to remember. We, it's, our, it's our duty as citizens to remember our entire history, not, not just the reassuring parts.
0: All right, great. Uh, Actually, one final question. I almost forgot to bring this up, but I wanted to ask you about it. The book, you have a uh, dedication in the book, beginning of the book, uh, to a man named uh, Nathaniel Lee Hawthorne. It says, memory of my friend Nathaniel Lee Hawthorne, the bravest man I ever knew, who faced down the Ku Klux Klan in Lunenburg County, Virginia. So so tell us, who is Nathaniel Lee Hawthorne and why
1: is he? Well, Nathaniel Lee Hawthorne was a World War II veteran. Uh, He was severely disabled in World War II. Uh, He was stitched back together. I knew him in the 1960s. I was helping, I was assisting, I was assisting him, actually, in doing voter registration in Lunenburg County, which is, and I'm merely quoting people who lived there and saying, Lunenburg is Virginia's Alabama. Uh, I, I, I it's a it's a it's a nice county I'm, I'm I'm not meaning to say anything unkind about people there today but it was a it was a rough corner of territory the Ku Klux Klan was very active in that county they were coming up mainly from North Carolina recruiting people southern
0: Virginia right very oh yes southeast
1: right um, yeah near this yeah. near the North Carolina uh line middle about the middle of the state actually yeah uh, it has no major towns, it has no interstate highway going through it. Uh it's a small, poorish place. It was a tobacco-growing county once upon a time. But the clan was very active. They were they were holding rallies on the steps of the county courthouse. They were burning crosses, they were terrifying people. And Nathaniel Lee Hawthorne, he was a quiet man, but an extremely forceful guy who was he was. Shot at, he was chased. He was harassed by the authorities. Uh, he, he worked with the NAACP. He was he was not a radical, except except on behalf of, of the citizen rights that we all Americans expect to enjoy. Um, and he he went he publicly walked into a Klan rally, uh, a Klan rally on the steps of the courthouse, and he sat down and he just put himself there uh his being there was a statement I, I I was with him I saw this happen. It's not a story mm-hmm. it's 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 something I witnessed and uh there's a lot more to that story but but that moment was the bravest thing I've personally ever seen mm-hmm. uh, he did it more than once he just did it once with me um uh, and uh i he was often in my mind when I was writing this book all right well, great okay. So before we go, um,
0: anything else you want to plug? Uh, You got your website or any other appearances or anything like that you want to uh, talk about?
1: Well, I would just like to mention my website. uh, For those who may be curious about my other books, there's a a lot of material on the website, reading material, articles, and so on. Um, And that is simply f e r g u s -S b o r d e w i c h F-E-R-G-U-S-B-O-R-D-E-W-I-C-H.com. Uh, even if you misspell my name, it usually comes up. It's an easy <laughs> name to misspell. Um, and I I, uh, I do uh, book events from time to time. I'm speaking at the uh, National Archives this week and New York Historical Society next week. But uh, I had a very, very, very productive book tour in the Deep South, Deep South, and all kinds of people came came to listen and, and we had great conversations. Uh, and a lot of people... of. Who just want to know what history was sure yeah that's great thank you all right okay well again the book
0: uh is clan war ulysses s grant and the battle to save reconstruction uh fantastic book um let's say i have uh i have a whole shelf of mr border's books you guys can't see it i'm pointing sure. here it's out, outside of the the camera range but it's it's right over here um yeah highly highly recommend this book it's a fantastic history of the period um, in some places not a easy read uh, just because of the sort of the nature of the the topic and what the clan was getting up to in that period um, but you know things um you need to read and need to know and uh, so but it's a really really well done portrait of um of grant himself and then um congress and some of the uh players in congress like uh, ben butler and thaddeus stevens and other guys we didn't get to talk about um in the in the book uh, that come up pretty heavily um in grants administration like amos akerman the attorney general and some of the soldiers um, who are part of the sort of the occupation troops going after the clan uh like, like major merrill and uh things like that but uh, so highly highly recommend it recommend it make sure you go out and get it you'll you'll enjoy it and uh uh uh, i enjoyed it and so um thank you uh mr borderwick for coming back on the 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 show to to talk about the book with me and uh thank you very much for you know taking the time to to write the sucker and you know (laughs) and do all the research and everything so that we can uh so we can enjoy the the fruits of your labor so thank you very much
1: well thank you tim it's been a real pleasure
0: oh no problem And again, if you like this
1: podcast, please
0: consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you uh, have any questions or comments or any recommendations or books you'd like to see discussed on the podcast, uh, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our uh, Twitter account for the podcast. You can check us out there if you're into that sort of stuff. uh, Our Uh, Twitter handle is at excuse me it's not Twitter anymore it's X well it'll I'll call it Twitter for the rest of my life and no matter (laughs) whatever they change the name it will always be Twitter Uh, so you can reach out to us at X slash Twitter our handle is at illbooks at I L L books so check that out if you have any questions comments you know feel free to give us a follow send us a DM any of that stuff and uh, that's pretty much it so thanks for listening everyone we'll see you guys next time take care love you Robbie love you mom (laughs) bye-bye